Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. New year, same problems? Well, maybe you're facing some new challenges this year, but one thing we know is always top of mind for a lot of people living in Albuquerque and in New Mexico is crime. And solutions are often something we all talk about at the start of a new year. What can we do or what can newly elected or appointed city and state leaders do to help curb or stop the cycle of violent crime? So today we're looking at some of the solution-based approaches that Albuquerque is focusing on when it comes to crime in part. You've heard us mention the Albuquerque Community Safety Department before on this podcast. It's also called ACS. It is essentially the city's civilian emergency response team that stands apart and shoulder to shoulder really with police and fire. Now, they ended 2022 responding to well over 16,000 calls for service. So responding to things, including welfare checks, homeless encampments, mental health crises, and a lot more. So more than a year into ACS's on-the-ground service, we wanted to ask, is it working? Now, granted, that is a very broad question, and sometimes it is hard to measure, but there are certain indicators that we can talk about and things that the program is working on expanding this year, things that we wanted to highlight here in today's episode. ACS now has what it calls a special operations bureau. Within that bureau is a program that has social workers. They reach out to families and victims of crime seeking to prevent more of it in the future. So we'll get into what the special ops team does. But first, let's introduce the two guests next to us today. With us is Walter Adams. He's a behavioral health responder supervisor with ACS. And Angel Garcia also joins us. He's a social services manager with the city's violent intervention program. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. First, Walter, let's start with you. You and I have met before during my first ride along with ACS. We can post a link to that story in our show notes if you want to check out the story and and sort of how they operate on the ground, how they respond to calls. But in a nutshell, can you tell us what is it that you and your team do in the city? So... Our responders within ACS um, respond to some calls that are from police. I mean, they're basically police calls. We respond to calls like welfare checks, uh, people experiencing suicidal ideations, people just needing assistance, housing assistance, our unsheltered population, things like that. So we go out there, we try to problem solve with them. Um, We also try, when people are having mental health crisis, try to meet them where they're at and kind of just help them down the road, address underlying issues and things like that. So Angel, same basic question. I know we haven't met in person, but I've watched a lot of the press conferences that you've been a part of in the last year. So I kind of feel like I've seen you before in some ways, but that same question for you, uh, what is the violence intervention program and what is your role in it? So the violence intervention program is a public health approach to addressing gun violence. Um, We understand that there's a lot of root causes of why people choose to sell drugs or choose to get high. So we try to provide the resources and make the referrals to get them the help that they need to hopefully get them out of that lifestyle. So my role, I started off as uh, the first person hired uh, for VIP, civilian, I should say, because VIP was... Um, 
An APD and 11th floor uh, Tim Keller administration, baby. As crime gets worse in the metro, Albuquerque's mayor says it is time to take a different approach. Mayor Keller announced the creation of a violence intervention program. He says it includes the creation of a new division at APD tasked with collaboration. The mayor says the goal is to get the division to share more information with other law enforcement about criminals, but also do more outreach to victims and roping in social services to address the needs. It does get very complicated and it's very different by person, but it's that early engagement and communication that is something that, I mean, frankly, we just haven't been doing. And uh, that's what this is all about. The model calls for a credible messenger. That means somebody who has lived the lifestyle of the folks he's trying to help. Mm -hmm. So I myself was a gang member. I've been in prison. I, I've done all that. So when I go out in the community and talk to folks, I could connect with them on a deep level because I know what they're going through. My team, I have a team of credible messengers as well. So my role has um, changed in the last, in the last year as, as we transitioned into ACS and I became a manager. So now I overlook the team that's out in the community knocking on doors and, and, and handing out the resources. And like Walter said, you know, I get the best of both worlds because I'm still out there myself too, you know? You're having conversations with families, victims of crime who uh, maybe have a lot of anguish, a lot of emotion tied up into what has happened, and you're doing what? Um, you know, for a lot of the people, the initial visit is mostly just giving them a hug and telling them, look, I've been here. I, I know what you're feeling right now, you know? I'm, I've buried a lot of friends. I've buried family members. And just connecting with them, you know, because once you make that connection, it'll be a lot easier for me to go back the second time around and then really ask them once they're started in the grieving process, then we could start asking about solutions or what it is that they need, you know. So as I understand, VIP, you know, I think you alluded to this. It's something that started before ACS, right? It was kind of an 11th floor Mayor Tim Keller initiative, hits the ground running. It is now under the umbrella of ACS, though, originally the idea kind of, as I mentioned, you know, intervening with people who are most likely to engage in gun violence, right? Yes, sir. And it sounds like you've maybe, though, expanded the mission perhaps since it started. Can you sort of tell me? Basically, the Special Operations Bureau has the violence intervention program, school-based violence intervention, hospital-based violence intervention, and we also have CORA, which stands for Community-Oriented response and assistance team. And then we're also going to implement a trauma recovery center in the city of Albuquerque. And pretty much all these programs play into each other and work hand in hand with each other because a lot of the tragedies, a lot of the community tragedies that Cora gets called out to are some of the same family members that we're going to work with as well. So it's, it's pretty much just a compliment. Each program just complements the other, you know, and, um, if we can't reach somebody through this program, maybe we get a referral through this program. The whole point is for us to reach the people that need it the most, you know. And and certainly expanding beyond just gun violence now. As oh, well. yeah, yeah. The Trauma Recovery Center is going to address all types of violence. Um, the only, I mean, we will re take some people, but the only violence that we're not really going to focus on is domestic violence because we already have a domestic violence resource center. And we don't want to duplicate services or, or step on anybody's toes. But other than that, um, yeah, we'll be taking uh, everybody. And uh, yeah, like you said, uh, last year in June, we transitioned under ACS because, you know, violence intervention is community safety. So it just made sense. 
So it sounds like within the Special Operations Bureau, there's like a lot of different resources and programs and putting them all under the umbrella of ACS is sort of a way to aggregate those resources for people. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, we work hand in hand with each other, even though it's like we have special operations and we have our uh, behavioral health responders, community responders, different level of responders. At the end of the day, I think we're all out there to accomplish the same thing. And that's just to help people, help address underlying issues, help address things that are going on in the community. And I mean, Angel has called me on things, you know what I mean? To go help them out. Um, I've called Angel. So, I mean, although it might seem like we're separate within ACS, like we really work together. And again, it's to accomplish a goal of helping individuals in our community. I imagine that's helpful too when you're maybe, like you said, encountering some of the same folks in different areas that might need similar resources. I want to start with the Violent Intervention Program because this is something maybe not everybody's heard of, even though it has been in existence before uh, ACS launched officially. Law enforcement and hospital workers, they can refer people to this program, right? And then like what happens next? Can you give us maybe an example of a person that may be referred to the program and then what happens? You know, first I, I want to shout out our, our two major partners, APD and UNMH, because they're the, our biggest source of referrals. So with APD, when we when we get a referral from them, our target population with APD are the those at highest risk of getting shot or shooting someone. So our first initial visit, we actually go out with the deputy commander from APD for safety purposes. And then after we make contact, then me and my team take over. Through the hospital, the social worker just asks them, do, do you want to talk to these folks? So after we get the referrals and we make contact, then with my team, we staff the case and see who this person will probably feel most comfortable with, whether it be female or if, it, if it's an older gentleman, younger gentleman. We, we try to match them up with the folks that are going to make them come out of their shell and accept services. Because um, these are the folks who historically don't want services because they feel that the system has failed them and they don't trust the system. And that's 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 one um, obstacle that as a team we have to overcome because we are a government program, you know. So when we go out, you know, like we, we, we talk the lingo, we make them feel comfortable, and then eventually they engage with us. You know, we, we have... Uh, like a 30% engagement rate, which is higher than the national average. So, um, you know, we've been doing well for ourselves. You talk about the overcoming that obstacle of people not wanting help. Is is any part of this participating in the VIP program, the violence intervention uh, mandatory? Like if, if can somebody be court ordered to participate or is it all voluntary? It's mostly voluntary, but there have, there have been instances where I go to court for someone and talk to the judge on their behalf and let them know, look, if you allow them to work with me, I guarantee you that it'll do them better than just sitting in jail for six months and picking up new tricks to the trade in there, you know? So when when, th when those instances happen, then the judge does expect me to uh, update the, the probation officer once a month or something on their progress or how they're doing, if they fell off, if they're not reporting. But... It's mostly consensual, you know, it's mostly, um, yeah, like they have to agree to it. 
I see that from the most recent monthly report from November, there was a, a total in there that said the VIP program has about 51 active cases around there right now. Obviously, November, it's been a little bit of time since then, so there may actually be more now. Um, but how many, how many are there out there? And I assume that when you mean 51 cases, there there's probably more people tied to that than just 51 people, right? Yeah, no, definitely. So um, like I said, every Monday there's a shooting review, and that's how... Uh, through APD, they 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 figure out who they're going to refer to us, who we need to go out and talk to. I should say this too: when when the program was in research and they did a problem analysis, the statistic was that it's only like 0.01 percent of any given population that drives the violence in any community. So here in Albuquerque, it's about 700 people. To date, we've identified um, over 500. I, I I forget the exact number. But in 2022 alone, we delivered to 177 folks. Okay. So from those 177 folks, not all of them asked for services. To date, from the from when we started in 2020, we have delivered to 433 people. We've delivered the message. From those 433, only 28, 29 of them have gone back to jail or have committed another crime. So um, that's only about 7%. So we have about a 92 success, 92% success rate at this point where people are not out there victimizing other people or getting victimized themselves. They're not going back to jail. So um, wow. to me, I think, you know, those are good numbers. Either they're becoming smarter criminals or the message is working or something, you know? Yeah. But uh, so that those are good numbers. I want to go back to something you just mentioned that I'm not super familiar with. So maybe other people aren't. What is a shooting review? You said that happens every week? Yeah, every every Monday morning, APD has a shooting review with uh, all law enforcement partners, ATF, FBI, the DA's office, um, BCSO. And they review every, every shooting that happens from the last previous Monday to Sunday. And then they review it Monday morning. So some of the things we look out for are, are people repeatedly coming up in the shooting reviews. Are they group or gang involved? Have them been shot before in the past? Because if they've been shot before, then and then they just got shot again. So that's obviously a pattern now. And um, yeah, so there's different things. Uh, they're who their associates are, and that's how we choose who we're going to go out and see. Okay. So from what you've seen, is there something specific or maybe a specific set of circumstances that people find themselves in that contributes to them being quote most likely to engage in gun violence? Like, is there one thing that you can say maybe a lot of people that you work with have in common? So I'll, I'll give you this uh, statistic from, from, from our hospital-based program. In 2021, when we were going out there and, and talking to folks bedside, uh, maybe like four out of 10 were smoking fentanyl. In 2022, it went up to 10 out of 10. Wow. Everybody that we were going, oh, they were chasing fentanyl, they were smoking fentanyl, or something revolving around fentanyl. So I would say that drugs is a major contributing factor and a, a big link here to the violence. What is the, the demographic you feel like of the people you're working with within the program? Is it, is it changing at all? Not really. So if, if you look at our data, like it's always been... 18 to 24, mm -hmm. there's a spike in violence. And then the, 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 the majority of the violence comes from the 25 to 34 demographic. Those are the people who are really out there killing people. And, um, yeah, and you know what, like as of 
like late the middle of 2022 we have seen more uh, juvenile violence and it's been increasing like at parties and stuff like that but that's a lot of property crime that happens with that demographic so all the really like shootings with injuries and, and and killings are coming from the older demographic the work that you do it seems like directly impacts the decision making that can be life or death decisions that are made do you feel that the work you're doing is saving lives? Well, I could tell you this. Um, I was working with a gentleman who admitted to me, had we not been, had we not knocked on his door and me working with him, that he was just waiting a heel to go kill the person that shot him because he knew who shot him. So I, I, I don't think we will ever be able to give you a direct or a concrete number of how many retaliation shootings we've stopped. But I, I personally do feel that we'd be a lot worse off if we weren't out there talking to folks, you know. And that story definitely echoes what Albuquerque's mayor and city leaders hoped that the VIP program would do all the way back three years ago when they announced the start of it. Quickly here for just a little added context, I want to play a clip from a news story that we put together back in November 2019 about the launch of the VIP programs. You have to engage with the people who have been shot, who have been stabbed. And you have to engage with the people who possibly, or at least know the people who might have done that. Unfortunately, for decades, we have not done any of this. We asked the mayor if this program will have an immediate impact. I wish someone could just deliver immediate results. I think, unfortunately, that's just not the reality with respect to what these crimes are about. He says it will take hundreds of new officers, millions of dollars, and likely years to fully realize the new intervention effort. If we're realistic about this and dedicated over the long run, we can make a difference. At the end of this past year, ACS reported that it's taken more than 21,000 calls for service and in about a month diverted 12,422 calls from APD. So those calls range, like we mentioned, anything from welfare checks to homeless encampment calls. But one thing we noted from our ride along with responders is that people can't be forced to help, right? People might look at those stats and say, it's great that people are responding, but the problem isn't necessarily going away. What is your response to that concern? And is there like a tangible difference that you're noticing that maybe the general public isn't aware of? One of the things we need to understand is like some of the people that are out there in the streets suffering from homelessness, you know what I mean? They have underlying, whether it's substance abuse or mental health issues. You know what I mean? It's not easy to trust somebody when you first meet them. So for us, it's about getting that rapport with that individual. It might not happen the first time. It might not happen the second time. It might take three or four times that we're encountering. And I think part of that rapport is to like bring light that ACS is not enforcement. You know what I mean? We want to go in there. We want to address the help address the underlying issue and help that individual open up that individual's mind to wanting to accept services down the road. So, I mean, like I say, sometimes we go to individuals and they're sleeping. They just woke up, you know what I mean? Which is understandable because some of these people in the street aren't sleeping at night, you know, and they're for protection or whatever else. So for us, it's just, like I say, I think ACS is doing a good job with trying to help in many ways, not just homelessness, but also, you know, mental health crises, people experiencing mental health issues that need to be resolved. Um, ACS is helping in all of that. So for me, it's just like, it's just repetitive thing. It's trying to get that individual in and it's one person at a time.
Is there a story or maybe something that you can share with us that you've noticed in your time with ACS that like, oh yeah, we're making a difference here. We're doing something. I will say is like, we did respond to a woman um, wanting to commit suicide. And um, I had a team go out there. The team went out there. Actually, a nurse went out there. She's the one that called it into police. She met with this individual several times. Um, went, knocked on the door, she wouldn't answer. She was concerned for that woman that she was possibly had made statements about committing suicide. Then that call came to us, ACS. So I had a team go out there, the team knocks on the door, she answers the door and pretty much slams the door in the face and pretty much just like, I don't want nothing, leave me alone, slams the door. So then I get on scene with the team and knock on the door again. And it's just, like I say, it's like, when we talk about responses, you don't always need a badge and a gun. Sometimes it increases it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get to that in this particular call. But um, I just told her, you know, I'm like, look, I'm not police. I'm here with Albuquerque Community Safety. This is what we do. Can you just talk to me for five minutes? And she's like, okay. And she opened the door for us. So um, she was very guarded. And then come to find out um, she did have a plan to commit suicide. And she had it laid out and mapped out specifically how to do that. And we got to talking with her and and de-escalated her enough to have those conversations and figure out her plan. Later on during the conversation, she had a bad experience in which, you know, uh, she had a bad police experience to where she didn't, like, really wasn't receptive to police. So we were able to talk to her and finally get her to the hospital. So with that individual alone, it's just about you know, sitting down, taking the time, investing the time and just truly just letting you know, hey, I'm here for you. Like, let's figure this out together. You're not here alone. Um, so that's kind of a situation that happened that I really feel was like some of the work that we do, but it's not all. It's hard for us people that are in the field, our us responders that are in the field to really look and see like what are our greatest achievements out there? Because like, I can tell you, like most responders that are out there, we're just out there doing the job. Like that's our job. That's what we do. People might look at it at wins, but that's what we do on a daily basis. We had one of our participants who was in crisis because her dog got ran over. The dog was dead. So then we called one of the BHR supervisors to talk to her. And when he got there, he just happened to have a resource for her to get her dog cremated. And we put it in the urn and everything from her, you know, so... I mean, our motto is the right response at the right time. You know, just that really helped her in telling her that uh, animal welfare is not going to take your dog and incinerate them. We're going to cremate them and bring them back to you. That calmed her down and allowed us to keep working with her, you know. Along these lines, both of these stories, I'm wondering from you each, you know, what is the community without this? Because we know that there were years without ACS or VIP. What what happens to the community here, you think, without these types of interventions i think it's another way to help the community it's just another avenue to help another approach a different type of approach i mean there's been approaches and programs and things in the past but i mean you i mean you can see how much we've grown in just the past year like four months you know what i mean so i just think it's a different it's a different vision of how do we help our community how do we help you know, I mean, divert calls from APD. How do we assist them and, you know, responding to higher risk calls, um, higher acuity calls? That way they can concentrate that effort there is 
what can we do as a department, as ACS, to help this community? And, and that could be substance abuse, mental health, violence intervention with the VIP program, um, just meeting the needs of our community at this time. Yeah, I, I would just say um, a definite decrease of resources because everybody in our department has a plethora of resources, you know, um, that at any given moment we could help anybody out with. Um, the wealth of experience between all of us, you know, very different backgrounds. You know, me and me and Walter are heavily tattooed, but he comes from correction. I come from being an inmate, you know. So all, all of those different experiences is what makes us unique and empathetic and can, we can connect with our community the way we do, you know. Can I ask you guys a little bit about that? Because I'm always, you know, fascinated too to understand the backgrounds of where you guys all come from. Like you talked about being an, we have an in, a former inmate and a former corrections officer at the same table working together now. Tell me just a little bit of your story. Like what was your background pre-ACS and what made you want to join? <clears throat> so growing up as a young age, I grew up in Las Vegas, New Mexico. So there we know we have the state hospital. A lot of, you know, people that have mental illness were there. Um, to me at a young age is like, I was around it. I was, that was, that was, there's a lot of boarding homes out there. So like it was in our everyday life, seeing individuals that were suffering from mental illness. I didn't know what it was back then as a kid. Um, my dad used to play, um, in a league, basketball league out at the state hospital. It was just like a community league, but that's where they hosted it. And so I'd go with him at a young age and I'm sitting there with all these people, you know, talking to themselves you know, screaming, yelling, different things. And I never thought twice about it. And fast forward for me, it was like I fell in within the mental health field, which I, I didn't choose it, it chose me. And I felt like it was organic. And for me, I couldn't ask for a better job or blessing that I'm able to work with individuals I do. Um, everywhere I went, like I've done uh, juvenile corrections, juvenile probation, adult probation, adult corrections, um, my job previous to this as I was the program manager in the mental health unit at Metro Court. So I did um, oversee mental health court or behavioral health DWI court in both uh, felony and misdemeanor competency courts. So everywhere I went, whether it was corrections, juvenile, adult, probation, I just always landed up in the mental health unit. And that's kind of, like I say, it was kind of organic. It chose me and like, I couldn't see another path for me other than working with the individuals that we do work with. You know, so I, as I got older, I was just getting tired of that lifestyle. But then also, like, when one's getting into the job, you know, growing up Mexican in Los Angeles, we all have that one family member that's not quite right, but then they always tell you, oh, like, he just, they hit their head when they were kids and they <laughs> haven't been right since. But it's hmm. a mental health that's never been diagnosed. And, like, even for myself, like, once I got into CNM, I, I figured out, that I really liked working with folks um, who had walked similar paths as me. So I kind of pursued that, and then um, I ended up getting the job. And um, so now, yeah, just I have 20 years of experience running around in the streets and being in prison. Why wouldn't I use that to help somebody avoid it, you know? And you're from L.A.? Yes, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. What was the turning point for you, changing your lifestyle? I was in prison, and uh, one of the inmates' mothers died. And like he was in his 50s and his mom was in her 80s. And that kind of just, I'm a mama's boy, you know, raised by a single mother. And it just made me snap too. Like, oh, oh my God, if I don't change my life, that's going to be me. And 
that was scarier to me than any times I've been shot at, any times I've been chased, jumped, just not being able to be there for my mom as she grows old. That's what kind of made me snap out of it. And I told her I want to change. I just don't know how. You know, when I get out, I don't know what to do. So then my mom suggested move to New Mexico with your uncle, um, her brother, and he's a professor at UNM. So um, he's the one that allowed me to come here and he made me go to CNM and everything just fell into place for me there. Moving forward, we know there's, sounds like 57 civilian responders now at ACS. Uh, 13 were added in December, as I understand. So Walter, the main goal for this next year for 2023 with your department and its role in making the community safer, what is the main goal for the for ACSUC? I think the main goal this year is going to just be refine what we're doing. You know what I mean? Like really get in there and, and refine our approach uh, the right response at the right time. Just refine what we're doing already. Like we're doing it and just kind of making sure it's all squared away. What about you, Angel? Anything? Just really get into that community and start addressing the trauma, you know, the community trauma, generational trauma, uh, the just the trauma we experience growing up, like in the rough parts of, of, of the world, but we see it just as daily life. It's not daily life, you know, it's not normal. So we have to start addressing that, I think, on with the Trauma Recovery Center. Um, that's going to be one of our major goals. Thank you both for sharing uh, so much insight with us. We appreciate the work that you guys are doing and taking the time to talk with us about it. Thank you guys Thank for you. having us. Thank you for having us. Again, we want to thank Walter Adams and Angel Garcia, both with ACS. Angel working, of course, closely with the VIP program for opening our ears up to the work that they do. I think it is one of those things that's understated in its level of importance. Um, everybody sees the problems that are sort of out there on the streets. They may have hear, heard the news headlines, but, you know, just hearing the work that they do, the interactions that they make with the people who are involved in those news headlines, uh, it is impossibly difficult work it sounds like at times and um at other times it sounds like it's making a big difference yeah and that difference is like we talked about a little hard to measure sometimes right because you can't necessarily point to right. a, a specific number and say this is how many you know lives we're impacting but yeah. the fact that people are participating in the program is certainly i think hopeful and like he said they understand the obstacle of getting people to trust them and and really respond and I mean, literally a just open the door, right? Open their door yeah. is step one, it seems like. So it, it feels very foundational in trying to address the greater social issues that circulate around, you know, the headlines of a person shot to death or a party shot up. We will figure out what the sort of impact is over likely a longer course of time. Certainly, we'll keep an eye on that. If you guys have any ideas for the podcast or people you would like to hear from on our show, feel free to reach out. I'm Gabrielle.Burkhard at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. And I'm at Chris McKee TV. And as well, you can email me at chris.mckee at krqe.com. Thanks again for listening.